Well, we're jumping here into week two, maybe here last week, and we set out this idea of trying to create a disciple-making culture at Johnson Ferry. Now, before we get into all that, let me just ask a question. Do any of you watch Shark Tank? Any, like, Shark Tank fans out there? You can put your hands up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of fans in the room of Shark Tank. Every now and then, our family, you know, we watch Shark Tank. And so you, you know the basic idea of this show, right? So people come in front of this group of potential investors, and they pitch their idea, their product, and the idea is to get the investors to buy into what it is that they're trying to do, trying to sell. Now, just as a thought experiment, go with me here on this. What would it be like if Jesus went on Shark Tank? What would that be like? Well, the road would be different to start with, but what, what would that be like? Let's just imagine that they didn't know that he's the son of God. He's just some other guy that comes in and says, I have an idea that's going to change the world, change the hearts of people. And with their cynicism and skepticism, like, okay, how are you going to do this? You're going to, you're going to go all over the world? He says, nope, actually, I'm going to spend most of my time just 20 miles or so from the place that I grew up. Well, well, I mean, how many, how many thousands of years are you going to do this in? He says, well, actually, I'm only going to be here for 33 years, and of the 33, I'm going to really just spend three of the years doing what's going to change the world. Well, then I guess you're going to, what, fill stadiums, arenas, pack them in to come see you? Is that was No, no, no. I mean, I'm going to do some crowds, Jesus would say, but I'm going to spend most of my time with just a few individuals and really spend time with them, not the crowds. Well, the, Jesus, I mean, what kind of plan is this? Who, who are these people you're going to spend with? Are these Navy SEALs or something? Are, are these the elite? Are these Ivy League? Edu- like, who, who are these people? They're, they're just average, ordinary, you might even say blue-collar people that are going to change the world. Now, here's the question. Do you think that they would invest in this strategy of Jesus? Probably not. And yet, that is, in a nutshell, the very strategy, the method that Jesus used to change the hearts of people. Now, today we're going to look at the methods of Jesus. I've entitled this message, How Jesus Made Disciples. Last week, we began this journey by just talking about abiding with Jesus, producing fruit. Today, we're going to look at how Jesus made disciples. And the reason is, Well, let me just say this from the outset. None of us are Jesus. You may need to know that. In fact, look at your neighbor right now and say, you're not Jesus. Just say that, okay? You're not Jesus, right? Like, so in case you didn't know that, newsflash, you're not Jesus. But, but, Jesus wants us to do ministry in the way that he did ministry in order to change the hearts of people. Somebody said this uh, a number of years ago. I learned it. I love this. Again, a guy named Jim Putman. he said this. He said, Jesus' message plus Jesus' methods equals Jesus' results. Now, we're all about the message of Jesus, the gospel. But sometimes we're not about the methods. And one of the reasons that we don't see the results that Jesus wants us to see in ministry is because we're all about the message without being about the methods. So today we're going to look at what it looks like to grow up in the things of Jesus, and we're also going to look at how Jesus made disciples. And here's the big principle 
that I would love for us to just talk about and to think about as it relates to this, this culture of disciple making. Here's the principle we're going to see in Jesus' life. It goes something like this. To multiply many, focus on a few. To multiply many, focus on a few. In fact, would you just say that with me? Let's say it together. To multiply many, focus on a few. See, this is Jesus' strategy, is it not? He wants to multiply many. He wants many disciples. He wants many followers of his. Yet he's going to do it in the most counterintuitive way by focusing on a few in order to multiply many. To multiply many, focus on a few. I have several scriptures I'm going to point you to today. So this is going to be a good uh, note-taking day to just jot down scriptures, jot down some of the lists that I have for you there on your welcome guide. And let's begin in Matthew chapter 4 as we get a glimpse of Jesus calling his disciples. I think this is a wonderful place to start. So if you have a Bible, turn to the first of the four Gospels in the New Testament, these biographies of Jesus. And let's look at Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22. If you're new to this whole church deal, not every church does this, but we often start by standing and reading God's Word. So if you would, let's stand together. Let me read for you Matthew 4, 18 through 22. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the sea, where they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Father, we, we, we just start out by acknowledging what we might have jokingly said to our neighbor. We are, we are not Jesus. And yet we are filled with Jesus if we're your followers. We're filled with your spirit. And so, Lord, I pray today that you, by your spirit, would teach us. Teach us the ways of Jesus, how he did ministry. So, God, that we, though imperfectly, will endeavor to do the same. Lord, I pray that we are a church not only filled with disciples, oh, God, but one day filled with disciple makers, doing ministry in the ways of Jesus. Lord, we love you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So last week, we unveiled a definition of disciple. I don't think it's the perfect definition of disciple. And I'm sure if I asked a lot of you who are followers of Jesus, hey, what's a disciple? You would all come up with amazing definitions of what it means to be a disciple. But maybe to give us some clarity around the concept, we, we came up with a definition and it goes something like this. A disciple is one who has found Jesus, is following the ways of Jesus, and is leading others to do the same. Has found. There was a moment in the past when I was not a believer, and then I became a believer. And by the way, isn't it a miracle that any of us are believers? Amen? Isn't that a miracle? We, you may not have some incredible, dramatic, hey, I was... I was, you know, 
dealing drugs and, and all this, and then I came to Jesus. Some of you, the greatest drug problem you have is your parents drug you to church since you were like four years old and you were there when the doors were open. So, so whatever your story is, that's not the, the point is, isn't it amazing that your heart has been changed by Jesus? So there's a point when I was lost, but now I'm found. I found Jesus, but daily I'm learning to follow the ways of Jesus. We talked last week briefly what we mean by the ways of Jesus, that I'm, I'm developing what it means for me to be a worshiper, to worship, to live in community, to be a servant, to be generous, and to multiply. And here's the big hurdle. Most of you love the idea of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, but very few of you ever become a disciple maker. But to be a disciple in the way Jesus wants us to be a disciple means that not only we found him, not only that we're following him, but that we are leading others to do the same. And that's the shift from a disciple church to a disciple making church. So let me just ask you a very convicting question. You don't have to write it down. You don't have to answer out loud. But I, I do want you to answer in your head this question. Who am I intentionally discipling right now? Think about that. Whether you're in the back, bleachers, over here to my right, students, like, do you have a name? Not accidentally, but intentionally. Now, my hunch is that most of you are struggling to put a name there. And you know, there's a lot of times where I am struggling to put a name there. But Jesus longs for us not only to be his disciples, but to go and make disciples. To, to get at this, we, we want to take a deep dive into the ways of Jesus and how he did ministry. And I think the two big planks that I want to build this message on are, number one, I want us to look at the stages of growth where Jesus wants us to grow up. And then I want us to look at the stages of ministry that we are to, albeit imperfectly, model and copy Jesus in. So let's start with the first thing. Jesus wants you to grow up. If you are a parent and you have a child, you want that child to grow up. So let's think about our own maturity with Jesus. And to do so, let me give you five stages of a disciple's growth. I didn't come up with these, but I think these are very helpful, pretty basic. And what I want to do is give you a category, maybe a few features of someone in that stage of spiritual growth, and then maybe some of the things that person would say. So number one, first stage of spiritual growth, you're spiritually dead. Isn't that inspirational? You're spiritually dead. Congratulations, you're dead. But actually the Bible says that. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I think the point of this is to say that, that all unbelievers in Jesus, they might be good people, they may be hardworking people, they might be great citizens, they might be a great boss, they could be a good husband, a good wife, all that. But if they are not a follower of Jesus, then they are dead. And that's the mission. These are the people to whom we want to put special emphasis on to reach with the gospel of Jesus, spiritually dead people. We were dead. No one is born a Christian. You can't be born a Christian. You have to be born again 
to become a Christian. So a spiritually dead person, what do they say? Well, you'd hear things like this coming out of a spiritually dead person's mouth. I, I don't believe in God. There is no God. Or they might say, there are many ways to God. Or no one can really know who God is. A spiritually dead person might say, uh, I've been a good person, so I'll be okay when I die. These are the types of things that come out of a spiritually dead person's mouth, which are an indicator, aha, this is a great person to try to introduce to the truth, belonging, and purpose that only comes in Jesus, the gospel. Now, let's say that they are born again and God does a great work in their life and they move from death to life. Well, what's the next stage? We would call them an infant, a spiritual infant. What's a spiritual infant? Well, these are new believers. And most of the time when you have new believers, they're, they're excited about the things of Jesus, right? I mean, they're, they're eager to learn. They start to see changes in their life. It's not like all the junk's gone, but I mean, they, they're, they're working out some stuff in their life. You know, they have new desires and new wants and, and, and maybe they're not talking the way they used to talk. And even some of their family members start to say things like, you are, you're different now. Like you're, man, what's that? Like something's different about you. Now they may or may not like it, but when you're an infant, you're just starting to grow like, like a baby grows. Now you're ignorant, but you're growing. What's someone who's a spiritual infant? They might say something like, honestly, I'm not exactly sure what happens to people when they die. Or they might say, uh, I don't want to have bad karma in my life because they still might believe in something silly like that. Or, look, I've always been connected with God and nature. Hey, going outside, that's my church. Because they don't understand yet what the body of Christ is all about. They, they just don't, they're just ignorant. They don't know. Good people, they just don't know. They're infants. Now, if someone grows from the infant stage, what would be the next stage? It would be a child. Now, to be a child is really to be focused on one thing. You. Did you ever notice that about your kids? Like, when's the last time your child came up and you said, Mom and Dad, I just want to thank you for, you know, providing my meal today. Like, I know you didn't have to do that. Thanks for, like, I just got up this morning, Dad, and I thought, isn't it great that you paid the mortgage last month? I'm so grateful. <laughs> I mean, maybe your kids do that. I'd love to learn from you. Like, how are you doing this? But, yeah, children, just like all of us when we're kids, we tend to be very self-centered. Uh, sometimes that comes out in different ways, but we're self-centered. A, a spiritual child may know the basics of the gospel. They can tell you about Jesus down on a cross and the resurrection. They can give you a basic understanding of, of, of key doctrines at, at some basic level. But let's be honest, their life is still very much dedicated to them and their needs and their preferences and their desires and their wants. And that comes out even in their life with Jesus. So they say things like, hey, I'm not being fed at this church. You're not meeting my needs. Or they might say, uh, hey, look, don't mess up my small group. Like all these people coming in and messing it up. Like, or don't ask us to multiply or divide. Like that's what, that's what spiritual children tend to think. Or they think, hey, a church needs to be all about what I want it to be about. And if it's not, then, then, you're, not, then you're not doing good in, when it comes to designing your church. This, this is the kind of thing that spiritual children say. Now, hopefully that child transitions into being a young adult, and that would be our next stage, to be a spiritual young adult. And the big shift that's happening in this stage is that they're becoming much less self-centered, though we probably all struggle with that our whole life to some degree, but they're becoming much more God-centered. Their, their life is less about them and their preferences and their desire, and it becomes more about God, His will, 
and quite frankly, other people. And, and this is a beautiful stage to watch because this is a stage where you see a lot of growth. You see them often serving intentionally, though they may not be making disciples intentionally, but they're serving intentionally. They want their life to count for God. They want to do great things for God. So you might hear a spiritual young adult say phrases like, hey, look, I was reading my Bible this week and, and I just had these questions. I'd love to talk about that with you. That's, a, that's the kind of thing a young adult would say. Or I, I, I heard about this mission trip this summer. I really want to go on that. Would you, would you pray with me that just God would provide the resource? I want to be a part of what God's doing. That's what a spiritual young adult would say. Or a spiritual young adult might say something like, man, can you, can you look at all these people at church today? I mean, look, I know it's kind of a pain, but isn't it awesome that I had to park like three miles away? That's what a spiritual young adult would say as they come to church looking at all the infants parking in the first time guest spot. Anyways, just kidding. But that, that, that's, that's what would happen, right? Now, the goal, the goal, I think, in the mind of Jesus is that, that we would mature to the point where we become spiritual parents. And I'm using the word parent instead of adult because I, I want to emphasize this idea of reproduction, replication, that Jesus longs for his disciples to become disciple makers, and they're motivated primarily out of their own abiding in Jesus and seeing him bear fruit in the lives of others. What's a spiritual parent talk like? They may say things like, I'm praying about who it is that God wants me to invest in in this next season of life. Or they might be saying, hey, I've been, I've been mentoring or discipling you know, this name or two or three people for the last season. We're now praying about who they're going to disciple in the days to come. These are the kind of things that spiritual parents talk about because it's about replication and reproduction and, and seeing the things of Jesus being poured into another generation, seeing them growing and becoming disciple makers themselves. So as we look at these stages, I guess the big question is, which one describes you? Now, you might find yourself in one or two of them, but which one best describes you? Jesus Christ wants people to grow. And I love, by the way, the mindset that Jesus had because he always had such expectation and hope for people. I know it's so easy in our world today to, to look at all the awfulness of the world and to think, oh, isn't, isn't it terrible? And isn't it awful? And how come things are changing? And how come they're so terrible in our country and the world? And, and, and look, there, there is a, a degree in which you look at the world and you go, oh, what in the world is going on? And yet Jesus Christ always looked at the world with hope. And he looked at people with hope. Jesus would look at a crowd and wouldn't go, look at all these dirty, rotten sinners. You guys are worth nothing. No, he said, these are like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. Jesus would look at, at the fields and tell his disciples, guys, would you look at that? These fields are white on the harvest. Can you look, look at all these people? That God is doing something in their life. Enter into that work that he's already doing before you even get there. We have to have that multiplication movement mindset in order to truly be disciple makers. Because our goal is if we're going to multiply many, we got to focus on a few and have hope. So how did Jesus do ministry? What, what did that look like? And what was his strategy? Let me give you four stages of how Jesus made disciples. 
And I'm going to do so by using some phrases that Jesus gave. And I think these help to spell it out. And the idea is that we look at how he did ministry. And then we think, okay, how, how can I do the same thing? Not Jesus, but how can I, maybe even imperfectly, how can I do the same thing? So let's talk about four stages. The first stage of how Jesus made disciples, we're going to call this the come and see stage. This is the stage where it's just about you living differently than the world around you with a different set of motivations and different ethics and you're living for God's kingdom, for his glory in a world that probably could care less and yet it's compellingly and winsomely different to a world. And Jesus called people, hey, just, just come and see. Come and watch me. In John chapter 1, we read this. He says, again, the next day, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak. And they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, and it was about the 10th hour. And what will follow in the Gospel of John is just crowds of people watching Jesus do things that no one else can seem to do. I mean, now granted, he's Jesus, so he can do miracles. So in John chapter 2, he goes to this wedding, and he turns the, the water into wine, which is this beautiful and amazing miracle. But then in John chapter 3, they see that Jesus has these dialogues with religious people like Nicodemus who, who thinks they're good with God because they got all this Bible stuff, you know, but they don't really, they don't really have God in, in their heart. And then they watch Jesus interact with a Samaritan woman. No one talks to a Samaritan woman, especially this Samaritan woman. And yet Jesus interacts with her and, and she goes and tells others about Jesus. It was just, they're watching him live differently. Now, in this stage of disciple making, you're probably going to be around a lot of unbelievers, hopefully. That's the goal, that we're living on mission in the places that we work, we live, we learn, we play. And you're different than them. There's power in just simply being salt and light in a dark world. Amen? That at school, you're different than them. At work, you're different than them. And different in a way that's compelling, we don't need any more jerks for Jesus, all right? We need, we need people who are winsome and, and live this compellingly odd yet attractive way of Jesus. Jesus wants us to practice this come and see by just, by just being in places where there aren't a lot of believers and just being different and to have hope. 1 Peter 3, there's a verse that says this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. That word for defense in the English, it's the Greek word apologia. It's where we get the, the word apologetics. And when we hear apologetics, we tend to think about um, intellectual, rational arguments for the faith. And, and there's certainly a place for that. But I think a more natural reading of this verse is that he's saying, hey, look, 
in, in a very hopeless world, have hope and be able to live in such a way that connects the dots for people. To, why, why do you have that kind of hope? That's what it means to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Um, this past weekend, we had our deacon's retreat. And the highlight of the weekend is that we have these guys that are, you know, getting set apart tonight, um, share their stories. And every single year, it's just awesome to hear the different stories of, of how God has worked in their lives. And it's amazing, the theme this year, you know what it was? Interesting. The theme that showed itself again and again in, in most of their stories was, you know, I was basically over here, living my own way, doing my own thing, and then there was this guy or these two guys. And, and, and they were different, and they invested in me, and they reached out to me, and they, it was the presence of someone who just simply said, come and see, and they saw the way of Jesus. Now, that's where a lot of us are, and that's a great place to start, but there's another stage, and we'll call this stage the come and follow me stage of disciple-making. Now, this sounds like come and see, but I think the key difference here is that there's much more intentionality. Jesus called his disciples with intentionality. Mark 1, we have this, another story of the calling of Simon and Andrew. It says this, as he was going along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting the net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will have you become fishers of people. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Jesus had at least 70 to 120 disciples during his three-year public ministry. Did you know that? We tend to think about him having 12 disciples. But as you read the four gospels, there are several men and women who Jesus considered his disciples. Yet he did not spend intentional time with all of them in the way that he did the 12 that would later become the 12 apostles. And to Peter, he says, look, you're a great fisherman. Like, you know how to catch fish. You're very good at that. I want to actually teach you to use some of the same skills, but to do it for a much greater purpose. And I love that, that Jesus does that in your life too. He says, hey, you're good at this. I've gifted you and talent in this area. What would it look like to use that gift and talent to help other people find what they need in Jesus. So, so Jesus calls these people and there's an intentionality to it. it. We talked last week about this idea of Talmudim, these apprentices of following Jesus in the way of Jesus, investing in them. And Jesus looked for people that were receptive to his, to his following, to his message. A way to say it is uh, we're looking peop for people with fats. What do I mean by fats? F-A-T-S. That they're faithful that they're available, that they're teachable, and they're sendable, faithful, available, teachable, sendable. That's what Jesus looked for. To multiply the many, focus in a few. A few what? A few people that God leads you to who are faithful, available, teachable, sendable. And it's not immediate. It doesn't always happen right off the bat. But there's a stage of coming and following him. Jesus took this so seriously that he prayed all night. Luke chapter 6 says this, now, it was at this time that he went off to a mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer with God. Pause. Hey, when's the last time you spent an all-nighter praying to God? Not many of us have ever done that. In fact, let me just admit, most of us have never done that. 
In fact, can I just be honest? I have never done that. But Jesus spent all night with God in prayer. Why? It says, and when day came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. Jesus had a hundred and so disciples, but he was very intentional with 12 of them. And even of the 12, he was even more intentional with three of them. That's what this stage of come and follow me is. Not just come and watch me live differently, but I, I, want, I want to do life with you. There's accountability, intentionality. Come and follow me. All right, the third stage. And in a way, this is the make or break it stage. It's the come, take up your cross stage of disciple making. And this is a very hard stage because this stage is where you have to confront sin. At this stage, you have to confront some unhealthy patterns or issues from your family of origin. So this is a difficult stage, and yet this can be a great stage of freedom and power. I want you to listen to a conversation that Jesus has that I think gets at this idea. It's found in Mark chapter 8. We'll begin here in verse 27. It says, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who, who do people say that I am? Right? Who, who the crowd say that I am? And some, they told him, uh, John the Baptist. Others said, Elijah, one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them, but who, who do you say that I am? And Peter said to him, you are the Christ. Now, that, that's good, right? Way, way to go, Peter. Wonderful job. You are the Christ. That's great. But the conversation keeps going. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise from the dead. And he was stating the matter plainly. And listen to this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, Peter, Peter. Can you imagine that? He's like, oh, Jesus, just chill out with the whole cross thing. Could you can I talk to you a minute? Can I talk to you a minute? Kind of pulls him aside. Jesus, like, look, you're not going to get anyone to follow you if you keep talking about death and stuff like that, all right? Now, what, now what does Jesus say to Peter? He takes it very seriously. He says, get behind me, Satan. By the way, newsflash, anytime Jesus calls you Satan, that's not good, all right? So get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but on man's. Now, isn't this the switch from being a, a child to a young adult? See, see, Peter right now is thinking about the kingdom solely in terms of his own ideas of what the Messiah should be and do, his ideas of what the kingdom of God is like. It's all about Peter. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's not about you. There's something greater at stake. And then Jesus summons the whole crowd together, Mark chapter 8, verse 34. It says he summons the crowd together with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wants to come after me, he must, what? Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The key in this stage of disciple making is that you're shifting from just following Jesus and all these new and kind of neat behaviors to actually denying yourself 
and letting God reign in every part of your life. And that sounds easy. You know, Jesus, do it all. Jesus, hold my hand. Jesus, work in my life. All the things we sing and do. But can I just say, that's hard. Like, it's, like we might say from the stage, hey, Jesus wants you to be generous. And that's one of the ways of Jesus to learn generosity. That sounds great until it's your turn to write that check or to go online and to assign that a portion of money is going to go to the kingdom of God. And, and you start thinking about all, all the ways that money could be used for things that, let's be honest, seem immediately more satisfying than, than giving to the work of God. Yet, you know, this is the way of Jesus. And that's part of dying to self. An example might be a husband who's in a, in a marriage and things just, there's just clashing at the house and there's disagreements and there's things that she does that he disagrees with and, and, and why can't she be like this? And he starts comparing all these people, all, all this stuff. And then he reads a verse like, love your wife as Christ loves the church. And that sounds good, but what about this? And what about that? And that's not fair. And how come she gets to get away with it? Die to self and love her in the way that Jesus died to himself to love us. You're a student at school and you know, now you would never tell your parents this, but you know that the crowd that you're running with is not helping you follow Jesus. But to get out from that crowd is, it's weird and it's awkward. And what are they going to say? And I might be lonely and I might not have any friends. And it, but denying yourself is actually the path to freedom and life. And Jesus longs for you to get to the place, not where you're just following him, but you're taking up your cross daily, denying yourself. And that's what Jesus longs for us to be. Now, the fourth stage, this is the stage where multiplication happens. And we'll call this stage the go and make disciples stage. You're following him, you're watching him, you're denying self, and the goal for him in your life is that one day you will go and make disciples. This is the heartbeat of what Jesus commissioned his own disciples to do. In the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 8, it says this, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did you know that the way to literally read that, like if you, if you understand Greek and you read this in the most literal way, the command is this, go disciple the nations. That's what it means. So when Jesus called up his, I guess it's 11 apostles since Judas didn't make it. He calls them up on the mountainside and gives them commission to go and make disciples. The idea wasn't, okay, we're all about discipleship now, guys. So I'm about to leave. I'm going to go to heaven. So you guys go make disciples. I don't think the point was, hey, when Jesus goes, Peter, you're going to disciple John. And then Andrew, you're going to spend some time with James. And then somebody's got to get this new Matthias guy that we're about to get in here. Like, I don't think that's at all. It's like, you guys are going to go to other peoples, to other nations, to people not like you. You're going to get out of your comfort zone and you're going to go make disciples of people who are not yet disciples. And that's the heartbeat of disciple making. Oftentimes we think discipleship is all about 
Christians with Christians. No, no, true Jesus style disciple making is about engaging with spiritually dead lost people, helping them come to know Jesus, investing in them so that one day these disciples of Jesus will one day become disciple makers of Jesus. And you think, how could I do that? I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't know enough about Jesus. I don't know. Guess what? The Great Commission says that he will be with you to the end of the age. That with all the authority in heaven and on earth, go and disciple the nations and I'll be with you to the end of the age. You can do this because he's the one doing it in you. We can be making disciples in the way that Jesus made disciples. So where are you right now in your growth? And are you following the stages of Jesus, ultimately getting to the point where you go and make disciples? Throughout this series, I want to give you just a series of next steps of ways to keep thinking about this. Last week, you mentioned these. I think these are a good place just to keep the learning going. Um, One is that we have a great podcast that we recorded over the last year or two called Discipleship Download. And you can learn more about these concepts. I think it's a, it's a great aid, so download that. Um, subscribe to our YouTube channel and uh, get involved with these, continuing the conversation. Uh, we have another one that's live today that goes along with what we're talking about this morning. And, and watch that this week. Share with a friend. Also, we have just a good old-fashioned class you can come to, Disciple Making 101. We have one that started last week. You can jump in there this week. And if you didn't do it now, we're going to do them throughout the year. And you can learn about how to do that. But let me give you other, a few other steps that you may want to consider. Number one, pray for God to lead you to a certain people or a certain person. Remember how Jesus spent all night in prayer? God, show me the people. A lot of you need to spend, who knows, maybe all night in prayer. God, show me the people. And maybe that's someone even right there under your own roof or a neighbor down the street or someone at work or someone on that travel baseball team that you're on. But God, who is it that you want me to disciple? Number two, start with what you have, right where you are. You, don't, you may not have to get out of your neighborhood. You may not have to get out of your school. You may not have to get out of your house. Just to start with, you, with what you have right there in front of you. And number three, I want you to consider either joining or starting a 419 group. Now, if you've been around Johnson Ferry, you've heard us talk about 419 groups. That's based on Matthew 419. It's just one way of many ways to help put some of this Jesus-style disciple-making into practice. You may have another way that works well for you where you're helping people teach the ways of Jesus that leads to spiritual multiplication, disciple-making. If you're doing that, awesome. But if, if you don't have a strategy and you'd like to learn one, 419 group is a, way, is a great way to start. You can go online uh, to johnsonfair.org slash 419 and learn more about what those are, how to get involved. And we'd love to help you either start one ideally, or perhaps join one, and we'd love to help you in that. But we need to be making disciples in the way that Jesus made disciples. And to multiply many, focus on what? A few. To multiply many, focus on a few. We often end our services with uh, singing. I'm just going to sing a solo today instead. Is that cool? I'm just kidding. I'm not doing that for a but I, I do want to challenge you that if, if you've never given your life to Jesus, 
If you've never repented of your sin and put your hope in him, we want to help you to do that. And as other people are leaving today, we're going to have a team of folks down here to my right, our response table, who would love to just pray with you, talk to you. Or maybe on your way out, swing by the pergola out there by the atrium. And uh, we'd love to get to know you. If you have questions about getting plugged in here, groups, where do my kids go, all that kind of stuff, uh, we want to help you with that. But I want to end by not just dismissing you, but by sending you. Because once we say amen, you're going to go out into the world. And you're going to, first of all, you got to go to this parking lot. That requires a lot of, you know, God work right there. But you get out of the parking lot, you're going to go to restaurants, you're going to go to work this week, you're going to go to the doctor, you're going to go to, you know, practices, just all the stuff you do. And these are the places, these are the places where God wants you to consider making disciples. So we need his help. And I'd love to send you out to do that. Would you stand with me? Let me pray over you. And let me send you into your purpose. Father God, Jesus said, as you have sent me, I am sending them. So God, we are sent into this world. God, would we have the eyes of Jesus as we go to the places we go this week? And Lord, would you lead us to the people and the opportunities whereby we might demonstrate the truth, the belonging, and the purpose that only comes in Jesus. God, send us and use us. And until we meet again, we trust that you'll be with us to the end of the age. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.